to the Work Life Flow Podcast, where we moms take the reins of our lives, explore our options, question the status quo, and demand more from society. Here we come together to tell our stories and share tears of frustration as well as tears of joy. But most importantly, we come together to inspire you to create a work-life integration that works for you. So pour yourself your favorite beverage and come hang out with us. Welcome to Work-Life Flow episode 32. Today I have a trauma expert on the show and we'll be diving into the difference between big T and little t trauma, why we should never discount anybody else's trauma and how to heal from trauma. We'll also talk about what it means to be a radical mother and why attachment parenting might not be the best parenting choice for moms and what to do differently. One thing Krista and I will be exploring is how to create the space for yourself and for your needs and wants. And you know, my approach is to teach your kids independence. I love when my kids learn a new skill and actually put them into practice. One of the ways that I found I can support them is by creating checklists. And now I have these checklists for you. They are called my four must-have checklists for kids so they can get ready on their own while you sit back and relax. And you can get them on www.kerstinkirchsteiger.com forward slash checklists. That's www.kerstinkirchsteiger.com forward slash checklists. And now to today's guest, Krista Bevan. Hi, Krista. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me. So cool. I am so excited to dive into this a little bit. I read your bio. Would you like to explain, go a little bit deeper into what your approach looks like and what you do exactly? Sure. So like you just said, I help the women who I call radical mothers who are on this journey of consciously breaking cycles of generational trauma. And I help them do that through things like what I call nervous system literacy to understand their innate stress responses so that they can befriend their body and they can learn to work with the way that they respond to stressful situations so that they can tame their trauma triggers, so that they can be more present and more mindful in the moment and also start to unpack and unwind some of the trauma that they've been carrying forward with them in their own lives so that they can dismantle that, so that they aren't passing it on to their children after them. So when we hear trauma, I think you call it big T drama, like the big impactful one-time events that happen in life. But you also have another trauma that you talk about. Could you tell us a little bit more about the distinction and what does it actually mean to have trauma? Yeah, so big T versus little t trauma, as it's called in the trauma world. So big T trauma is things that anyone can easily identify as traumatic, right? So these are things like if you've ever been in a car accident or you've had a house fire or you've survived a natural disaster or you've lived in a war zone, right? Anything like that that's easily identifiable by an outsider as that's traumatic, But then there's also little t traumas, and these are things that might not have the same weight when they're viewed objectively, but can still really impact us and impact our system. 
And those are things like, you know, subtler forms of neglect in childhood. It can be emotional distance from your parents. It can be poor attachment styles with your parents as you're growing up. It can be these sort of subtler things that happen to us that can layer and layer and layer and overwhelm our system. And really that's what trauma is. So at its sort of simplest definition, trauma is anything that comes too fast, too soon, and overwhelms your system's capacity to cope. And your system's capacity to cope is very personal and it's very individual. And it's impacted in part by previous experiences that you've had that have overwhelmed you or have been traumatic. So if you've experienced a lot of trauma Previously in your life, you're more prone to being re-traumatized by things in the future. And you're also influenced by genetic components in terms of how resilient you are to stress. And that can all, you know, add up to making everyone's individual capacity for dealing with these things different. And what that means is that something that you might experience that's traumatic for your system if we were to go through the exact same event at the exact same time, might not influence my system in the same way. And so that's one of those things where little t traumas can land in different people differently. And sometimes we tend to minimize that and discount our own individual experiences because it might not be traumatic for another person. So what I hear you say, even if it's not identifiable for everybody as a trauma, it still counts, right? We should not discount if it feels traumatic to us. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a tendency for trauma survivors to minimize their experience and to rationalize away what they have experienced as not being traumatic. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that. Can you explain how that works? Like, is this a, a sort of a coping mechanism? I think that it is a coping mechanism. You see this a lot where people say, well, but other people had it worse, or this probably wasn't as bad as I'm making it out to be. And so people tend to minimize their experience. And I think what that does is that then also it discounts the very real symptoms that they're experiencing from that. And it continues to disconnect them from what happened and what's continuing to happen in their system that needs to be addressed. And as long as they continue to be disconnected from that, they can't do anything about it and they can't work to resolve that trauma in their body and they can't work to resolve that experience and then move forward from it. And so really I see that as a disservice, but it is so common amongst trauma survivors to do that. And I think you're right. I think it is partly a coping mechanism because they don't want to deal with those experiences. So they minimize them and rationalize them away instead of embracing them and then being able to do something about them. And then it could possibly manifest even worse in the body, I guess. Like if you're trying to minimize, but it is there, I guess there there might be some sort of backlash that it's actually deeper ingrained in your body because you can't release it. You're doing TRE or TRE. Could you explain a little bit how you can release trauma and what strategies you have or what tools you teach? Sure. So TRE is one of the primary ways that I do that. So it stands for Tension and Trauma Releasing Exercises. 
what we're doing when I work with a client to lead them through the TRE process is we are going through physical exercises that are designed to evoke a natural shaking mechanism in the body. And this natural shaking mechanism is a part of your nervous system's ability to discharge a stressful event from your system. So when we experience stress, that experience is really being created by a flood of survival hormones in our system. Things like cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine running through our body. And those are preparing us for the stress that we're anticipating and the perceived danger that we have you know, seen in our environment. And when we do things like fighting or flighting away from that stress and away from that danger, it uses those hormones up and resolves that stress response. And that makes sense when you think about it. The problem is most of us are not actually processing through stressful situations by fighting or by running away from them. Instead, we're stuck with them. We're behind the wheel in traffic. We're checking our email inboxes that are overflowing. We're watching the news. We're dealing with stressful coworkers. We're dealing with pandemics, right? All of these different things that we encounter in our life. And so rather than running away from those or fighting them, those survival hormones are still in our body. And until we do something to move them out of our system, they can sort of lock up our physical body. They can start to do damage in our systems. And so what TRE is doing is it's tapping into the shaking that we all have as a, as a way to discharge some of that. And when we do that, it starts to regulate our system. It gets us back into a state of dynamic flow where we can not only contract in stress, but we can also expand into relaxation and we can move back and forth. We can reestablish some pulsation of contraction and expansion into our lives, which is what we want in a healthy, well-regulated nervous system in our bodies. Yes. Yeah. I see a lot of parallels from my emotional intelligence training. Like we talk about the same thing. We look at the neuroscience, like you, you also base it on neuroscience. So we basically are in the prevention zone, basically to see, hey, how can you work with your emotions? How can you notice them, become more aware and then choose responses rather than reactions, which is one part. But you're like you say, sometimes you're so over flooded that you can't choose anymore. And so that's basically where you would come in. That's amazing. Another thing I wanted to come back to is you talk about radical mothers. Can you share your definition and what it means to be a radical mother? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I say a radical mother is a woman who's poised in her power, ready to disrupt cycles of generational trauma that are running through her family like wildfire. And so she knows, she has this knowing, it's this deep-seated in her bones knowing that she's going to be the person in her family to disrupt that. And she doesn't always know how she's going to do it, but she absolutely knows that those traumatic lineages stop with her, with whatever it takes. And so she's taking on that work and she is being both the end point of that trauma in her family and also the beginning of a new legacy for her children. And in order to do that, she has to really live and embody what she wants her children to have in the world. And that's a radical concept in the current mothering paradigm, right? It means refocusing some of our attention on ourselves to give ourselves the fulfilled life 
that we want to be able to demonstrate and model for our children in order for them to learn how to have a fulfilled life themselves. And we're not used to seeing that. We're not used to hearing that. We're not used to having that modeled for us that as mothers, we actually need to be a part of the conversation. We need to stop being an afterthought in our family. We need to stop martyring ourselves for the benefit of everyone else. Because when we do that, there's nothing left of us. It shows our children that that's okay. And it ends up ultimately coming at our own self-sacrifice, which doesn't benefit us and it doesn't benefit our children. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree. I, I have a very similar w- viewpoint on that. I started my motherhood journey a little bit in this. I, I wouldn't have seen it as martyrdom back then. I think when it struck me that it's going that direction, that's when I actively started working against it and, and, and speaking up again again for my needs and, and what I wanted. And so that this is why I am so passionate about bringing the family together because I think motherhood is a leadership position. I think you are the role model, like you say, right? What we do, how we show up is what they're going to pick up on. It's not what we say. It's not our words alone. Um, so I started out with attachment parenting and I listened to one of your podcasts that was super intriguing because you bring a different viewpoint to attachment parenting. When I, I basically was in that space that you describe of being a radical mother, I wanted to do it so differently and I wanted to be there for my kids. And, but when my daughter was two and a half, I was in that space where I was like, this is too much for me. Now I need to breathe again and I need space. Yeah. Could you share your your viewpoint on attachment parenting? Yeah, because I'm right there with you. And I do have kind of a, a controversial take on attachment parenting, which is I love it, but it's not enough and it doesn't go far enough. And it leaves mothers to bear the brunt of creating secure attachments. And it comes, I I think, a lot of times at the cost of the mother's own mental and oftentimes physical health. And that's been my experience. And it's also been the experience of a lot of other radical mothers who I think a lot of us have a tendency to come from an attachment parenting background and to gravitate towards that. Because like you were saying, and this is what I did as well, I wanted the complete opposite of what I got, which led me into the arms of attachment parenting and is wonderful to a certain extent. But when it means that the mother or two parents, if you're lucky enough to have two parents on board with attachment parenting, it leaves doing all of that work on our plates. And I think that attachment parenting came from a noble place. I think it came in reaction to a lot of the parenting styles of the, you know, the 1940s and 50s and 60s, which were very much like leave your child in a room on their own to cry it out, feed them only on a schedule, change them on a schedule, play with them on a schedule. They are not to interrupt your life and keep them as far away from (laughs) interrupting your life as possible. And attachment parenting, I feel like was almost the sort of like pendulum swing in the opposite direction. But what it fails to address is that this work should never fall on the shoulders. And I say shoulders literally because my back was breaking from carrying my son of one or two people. Instead, 
what we need is a village of people raising our children and a village of people raising our mothers, right? And you don't get that in attachment parenting. It's taking all of the benefits of having a village for the child, but without any of the benefit for the mother. And I think there's something missing there that needs to be a part of the conversation. How can we create environments that offer our children secure, healthy, loving attachments and also care for the mothers so that we aren't being destroyed in the process of offering that to our kids. And that's what being a radical mother is all about. It's asking these kinds of questions. It's exploring these kinds of topics. It's raising these points and then trying to use the wisdom of the collective to solve these problems because these are things that affect all of us. And I think that when we can find solutions, it doesn't just benefit me. It doesn't just benefit you. It benefits all of us, right? I'm always saying when mothers heal, the world heals. There's power in mothers everywhere being supported. And the more that we can do that, and the more that we can move towards living in a world where that's the reality, I think it serves us all. It serves mothers, it serves children, it serves partners, it serves coworkers and family, it serves everybody. But we need to be having these kinds of conversations about what it's going to take to move us in that direction. Hmm. So yes, from a logical standpoint, I think one of the biggest challenges we face is that we we live in these small family units now and, and we're really so isolated that we don't have a moment to hand off our kids. I noticed that now for four months we've been living in Europe and the mere fact that I can go out of the house to run an errand real quick and come back and not have to worry about my kids. I couldn't do that in the States. I, you know, we were just my husband and I and the two kids. And so it's either you organize a babysitter or it's really on you. And so, so I totally can understand that part of the problem is the way we live at the moment. And like you said, I think there's also a huge need to support mothers, especially in the early years, much, much more than, than that's currently available. In where I come from, it's actually weird because it's kind of counterintuitive, but we have a very long break. In Austria, you can take up to two years of maternity leave, which is paid like from your last salary. And the longer you choose, the less money you earn, but, but it's still a paid maternity leave. And actually partners can take that too. Um, so you, you kind of have to figure out who is taking what and how long, which sounds really good. But then going forward, it usually is a break that's too long for the moms to go back to work. So there is this, this other challenge that in, in the States, it's kind of you put away your baby super early on into daycare if you want to go back to work. And it brings me kind of to the topic of the podcast a little bit. I always ask my guests if they have found a work-life integration for their family and what were the main steps. So what were your main steps or how are you figuring it out that you take care of yourself, your relationship with your partner, your kid and work? So the biggest thing for me, which was also the hardest when I first made the decision, was I hired, I hired childcare. And I stopped trying to do and be everything for my son because in doing that, I had nothing left over to do and be anything for my husband, for myself, for anyone else in my life. But that decision 
to hire childcare was painstaking and heartbreaking because I felt like I didn't know if I could trust other people to care for him. I didn't know if I could be okay with them doing things differently than I would do. And it was really a hard decision. And then once we settled into a routine with a sitter that we found who we love, I realized that not only was it the best decision I could have ever made for my son, it was also the best decision I've ever made for myself as a mother. And what's been incredible is that it's allowed me to enjoy mothering so much more. Because when I get a break from my son and then I can come back to him, I can come back from a place where I feel resourced and refreshed and reset. And it's just so much easier to drop into that place of enjoying mothering instead of feeling like it's a mundane chore that I have to keep doing on my own. And so it's given me a renewed sense of vigor for wanting to mother and and play with my child and and do the things that he wants to fill his needs. I'm better able to fill his needs when I've had some of my needs filled. And then the other thing that's been amazing is that now I have a whole, I'm so much more trusting of letting other people care for him. It's helped him to grow as a person to trust other people as well. And now we have all of these amazing people who have entered into his life, who love and adore him as much as I do. And he gets that love and adoration, not just from mom and dad, but also from the babysitters that we have and love. And so it's just been this incredible win for everyone, but it took risking and it took trusting and it took having faith and leaping into that, not knowing how it would turn out. But ultimately, that was the only way I could create any kind of balance and any kind of integration because before that, it wasn't happening and it was just leaving me overwhelmed and burdened and exhausted and really resenting my child. And that felt awful. Yeah, yeah. I can feel it (laughs) because I've been in this place where I was too scared to get a babysitter. And it might be like the direct effect of attachment parenting actually because you're the person who is the they're so tied to you and and you want to do everything right and so so you don't trust other people to do the right thing or you're like oh if they do it a little differently they're gonna mess up my kid which is mm-hmm. almost ridiculous to think now um now I'm in the position that my kids are a little older so they already can you know they can defend themselves they can speak up and they do, which I'm really, really uh, proud of and excited that they, they actually set their boundaries. So, so that is, that is really a difficult point. I think when you're in this, I, I want to do everything perfect and I'm not sure if somebody else can do that. And honestly, I even struggled with relatives. I, I struggled with grandparents. I, I was like, no, this is not how we do this. We, I don't want you to say these things. And it's a fine line of setting boundaries with them, but also letting them have their own relationships, right? Because I think we can't really control. I mean, sooner or later, our kids are going to choose the relationships they want to have. And and so I think it's more important to model what a good relationship it looks like, what healthy boundaries are. And I think you're doing this by by saying, hey, I need time to myself because then I'm, the, I'm a better person. I can be more intentional with the time that we have together 
So I think you're doing an amazing job by noticing that you needed help and then getting it. And I think some moms are not at that position yet. I think we have to, I think both of us, we have to work really hard to make them see that unless they take care of themselves, they can't really show their kids that they need to take care of themselves later on. Like if they don't do it for themselves, let them please do it for their kids, like thinking about their kids. Um, so could you also share some... I don't know. Do you have some practical advice or, or what could you, I don't know if you would like, if you feel comfortable sharing what a day or what a week looks like in your home now, how you make the different parts of your life fit? Sure. So I work all day Monday from home. My husband is home. And so he takes, he is on childcare duty all day. He's with my son and I work all day. I see clients I record my podcast. I do all of my work, uh, not all of my work. I do a lot of work on Mondays. And then Tuesdays, I have my aunt come over and, and it's for her benefit, right? So she gets to hang out with my son, who she adores. I get a break. And then I have a sitter come Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for a couple of hours each day. And that allows me to have additional time to do work and see clients and then my son gets time away from me. I get a break. And then he and I get to spend quality time the rest of the day together. And then on the weekends, it's just usually just family time where I've had a chance to do my work and take care of myself so we can all hang out as a family and enjoy one another that way. Very nice. I don't know if it's even possible, but do you have an advice for moms who feel like they need to change something in the situation, but they can't quite pinpoint what it is? Yeah, I'd say trust your gut, right? So start listening to your intuition. And if it's giving you the signal that something needs to change, then follow that. Get curious about that message from your body and then start to get creative, right? Women are inherently creative creatures. And I think that when we put our minds to something, we are really incredible problem solvers and we can apply some of that for ourselves and start small. It doesn't, you don't need to, you know, go from being home with your child to putting them in full-time daycare overnight. It can be, it can be even asking your partner for a break so that you can go spend 15 minutes alone in a quiet room without anyone needing you and start there and just get comfortable with being away from your child and practice taking care of yourself in small doses and then work your way up and just be brave enough to take some of those chances that it will work out. Because again, like we've said, the return on that time that you spend alone actually serves your whole family. And when you can dedicate some time to your own needs and your own wants and your own desires, it's actually the opposite of selfish because it lets you show up with more presence when you come back to your family and it shows your kids how they can do the same thing in the future. So really it's the gift that keeps on giving. So start small, listen to your intuition and be willing to get creative and try it anyway, even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Beautifully said. <laughs> I would like for you to let my audience know if they got curious about Trey and as a TRE and <laughs> finding out more about you, where can they find you? Sure. So you can find more about TRE and how to work with me on my website, which is kristabevan.com. 
And then if you are listening to me talk about what it means to be a radical mother, and that is resonating with you, I have a Facebook community. I lovingly call it my virtual village for radical mothers. And that's on Facebook. You can search for the radical mother village and come join the conversation with us over there. Awesome. I'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes so it's easier to find you. And I would like to thank you so much for your time and expertise here. Thank you. Thank you, Kirsten. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Work-Life Flow. As always, you can find all links and websites mentioned in the show notes. Make sure to get your copy of the four must-have checklists for kids so you can sit back and relax while they are getting ready on their own at kerstinkirchsteiger.com. That is www.kerstinkirchsteiger.com. And remember, keep being brave and share your story.